Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning, 1030. How are we doing today? We're doing good. Isn't it really nice weather out lately? Like, I just feel better. Like, I feel happier um, because we got to hang out in the nice weather with our small humans. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Uh, Yesterday, I got to take my small humans to T-ball. Two out of three of them had a great time, so that's a win. Um, And we hung out in the yard. And I, like Brian said, man, it's good to be here in this room. I'm grateful for you guys to be here in this room as we get to hang out um, and really talk about this last week of our Real Religion teaching series. But to open things off, I have, a, I have a question for you. We're going to do some few hand-raised moments here. I will not call on you. I will not bring you up to the front. Introverts, you're safe. I am one of you. I won't do that to you. Um, let's do this. How many of you guys played a sport in high school? How many of you guys played a sport in high school? We're not going to ask college because you just feel, make me feel bad about myself if you played college sports. Uh, let's see here. Uh, who played football? In high school, where are my football players? Okay, we do not have a lot of football players that go to anchor. It was the same thing in the last gathering. Uh, volleyball, we're in volleyball people. Okay, uh, soccer. Okay, baseball or fast pitch. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, basketball, where are my basketball people? Okay, uh, swimming. Do we have any swimmers? Okay, uh, wrestling. Any wrestlers? Okay, again, more wrestlers than I thought. Just like last gathering, that's me. You're my people. Uh, and then uh, track. Or cross country, track or cross country. Okay, there we go. Um, the in high school is when I stopped playing baseball because I was too small to get the ball out of the infield as a batter. Um, so I turned to sports where my height wasn't as much of a disadvantage, like wrestling and cross country. Um, I joined cross country, and I, I always need to do this disclaimer when I tell a cross country story. Here, I am not a good runner. I was not a good runner. Pastor Brian is a good runner. Um, I did cross country because we got to play ultimate frisbee every day after practice, and it kept me in shape for wrestling season. Like, those are my two reasons. Uh, Pastor Brian, I get texts like I did yesterday from a, a guy who goes here, and he said, man, I did this 5K to raise money, and Brian showed up not having run in four months and got second place. Like, that's who Brian is? Like, if you're like, how do I become a good runner? Please talk to Brian. If you're like, John, I hate running. Come find me. I'm your person. <laughs> We'll talk about it. Um, But I did cross country, and I remember our first race we did, like, I was just all over the map. It was one where we had, like, two and a half loops, uh, because it was a course like that, and I I was confused, and I didn't know what to do, uh, and partly because I didn't pay attention to anything my coach said going into the race. (laughs) I was like, I'm here with my friends. This is fun. And then the next race, I was like, I'm not going to be good at this, but I'd like to not be this bad at it. And so I listened to our coach, and I remember we did something where we walked the course before we ran it. And as we were walking the course, our coach said this. He said, there are certain spots that I'm going to call out that I want you to remember and take a mental picture in your head of. And so he's like, hey, here's where we get to the one-mile mark. Like, take a picture in your head that this is the first mile. Hey, here's the spot where this turn is pretty muddy and steep. I want you to remember that. We're going up this hill. Take a mental picture of this hill and we, and we did that. And then when we were stretching and, and warming up, getting ready near the start line, I remember our coach, he said this, now remember all those things that you took a mental picture of. I want you to visualize the race that you're about to run. I want you to imagine, like, close your eyes and think you're approaching the first mile. There's that corner. How are you handling that corner? And he walked us through how to visualize it. And again, I wasn't good, but I did so much better when I did that. 
Like, one, who knew listening to your coaches is helpful? Uh, students, teenagers in the room, that applies to your parents as well. Um, but one, that was really helpful. But two, I think that we are wired to learn in a few different ways. I think sometimes we learn really well by being told and writing it down and keeping it in our memory, but sometimes we just need to see it. Sometimes we just need to see it. And I feel that way with faith a lot of times, right? I've asked these questions. You've probably asked some version of these questions where you said, God, would you just show me how to handle this person? God, this situation is tough. Would you please show me how to handle this situation? God, I have a hard time seeing what you want me to do to live out your word. And I would have these questions a lot. I still have these questions a lot. But the more I study the Bible and the older I get, the more I realize that God's answer to me most of the time is, John, I've already shown you. Like I walked on earth and had people write down how I interacted with the world. It's already been shown to you, John. You just haven't been paying enough attention. And man, that's so true. I grew up in the church and I think sometimes I, I thought all I needed to do was study the scripture and I'd know how to, how to live in the world. And sometimes I think if we get so distracted doing deep dives in scripture and verses, there's nothing wrong with that, that we can forget to do a deep dive into the person of Jesus. Because I think God knew how he built us because he's God and he wrote the Bible in a way that when he was telling his followers how to write down the text that would eventually become our Bible, he had these written instructions like we see in Isaiah, but then he actually gave us the person of Jesus being God himself that we get to watch live out real religion. We're like, hey, how do I visualize real religion? We look at Jesus. How, what does real religion look like lived out? Let's look to Jesus. That's one of the main reasons why God gave us Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at, like Brian said, a, a section of one of the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament that provide a narrative account of Jesus' birth, ministry, death, and resurrection. And the account we're going to be reading today is written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a doctor um, who really did some like investigative journalism stuff. Like he hung out with all the people who hung out with Jesus and he wrote down what they said and he wrote down their accounts and he formed this account that we have of the life of Jesus. And so in Luke chapter four, verse 14 is where we're gonna start today. If you have a Bible, you can open it or we're gonna throw it up on the screen. It says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Nazareth is not a large town. How many of you guys grew up in a, in a, not, like a not like a large city? Like you didn't grow up in Seattle, you didn't grow up in, Tacoma's kind of large now, like we're getting there. Um, how many of you guys went out of state to college that you grew up in a small town? Some of my people, okay, awesome. Uh, that first time you come back is special, right? Like I went to Minnesota and then I came back. That first time you come back and everyone sees you and everyone knows you and you got a name, like that's special. But this is Jesus, right? So it's, it's interesting. It says he's doing the things that he normally does, um, but he is drawing attention. And so he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
If that sounds familiar, it's because, and we can jump ahead to this, Isaiah 58, 6 says this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So Jesus has this moment where he's in church and he's in front of these people who know the Bible and he is reading this passage that we have seen in Isaiah 58. There's actually a part of this that we see in Isaiah 61 as well. And he's reading this up in front. And then let's go back to that Luke passage on the slides. It says, says this, it says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is cool, right? Jesus has just come back from being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. If we look earlier in Luke's account, we see that where Jesus has been in the wilderness and he has had every temptation thrown in front of him, right? And it's interesting, like a sidebar on that, temptation to Jesus and to us comes often in the form of like, don't you deserve this? Isn't this what you deserve? I think it's interesting that that's how we get tempted so much. And Jesus, unlike me and unlike most of us, uh, says no to the temptations, to all these amazing things put in front of him, power, wealth, fame, all these things he says no to. And he comes back to his hometown. He gets up in church and he says this. And then he says something crazy, right? He says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He is standing up in a room full of church people who know the Bible inside and out, and he is saying, this is fulfilled. And Jesus himself is saying, why is this fulfilled? Because I am here. He's saying, those prophets like Isaiah, those prophecies that you've seen that point towards a Messiah, yes, I fulfilled those, but I've also fulfilled the ones that don't talk about a Messiah, that don't talk about a Savior, that talk about what God wants us to do with the brokenness that is all around us. I have fulfilled that as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. We see this in his life. Jesus says at another point in his ministry, he says, hey, I didn't come to get rid of the law or for us to not care about it, but I did come to fulfill it. When we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, we believe that he is an example that we can look to. When we're trying to visualize what does real religion look like, we can look to the life and ministry of Jesus. And the first thing for me that comes to mind, if I'm looking at the life of Jesus and saying, what does this mean for real religion? It's this, it is every day. Real religion is every day. Luke 4, 14 and 15 says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now this verse doesn't say explicitly that Jesus was teaching every day, but if you look at the accounts of his life, it's pretty clear that Jesus had a pattern, right? He would go to a new area, he would teach, he would heal, he would do Jesus stuff, right? And then more people would come, he'd do more Jesus stuff and then he'd move to the next area where he'd do the same thing again and again. He was going and traveling and doing this every day. Now, here's the thing. I'm not standing up here saying that you're supposed to quit your job and, and wander the streets of Tacoma looking for people to help. I don't think we're all called to it. I'm also not going to tell you not to do that. Like, if God's truly put that calling on your heart, like, talk to someone wise who loves Jesus as well, but, like, maybe that's what you're supposed to do. That's okay. That's awesome. But even if we don't go to that extreme, I do think that real religion has to be an everyday thing. 
As someone who grew up in the church, I heard oftentimes the phrase, Christians are hypocrites. I said that phrase myself when I was frustrated with my church or my parents or people growing up in the church. And to an extent, I think some aspect of being open to an allegation of hypocrisy is just baked into being human. If you are an imperfect human and you care about good ideals, there is going to be a moment where people said, well, you said we should do this good thing and you did this bad thing. That's just life, right? Like we can acknowledge that we're all imperfect. We can acknowledge that we're all broken. And so, yeah, that, that's just going to happen. But I think sometimes that accusation gets leveled kind of fairly because we do things to check off a box. I did this when I was a student growing up in the church. No, I went on a mission trip. Like I help people who need help. Check. No, uh, my family volunteers at that soup kitchen like once a year. We help feed the hungry. Check. Hey, I had a bag of clothes that was going to go to Goodwill and then Anchor said, hey, bring it for the rescue mission and now I've helped the homeless. Check. Right? Like we do these things where we check off these boxes and we do something once or twice and we feel good and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but I think it falls short of what God asks us to do. Now, again, like I don't, I don't think that all of us are supposed to quit our jobs and wander the city of Tacoma and look to, to present the gospel and help people who need help. But I think we're probably, I know I am, supposed to be doing more than we actually are. And so a question that I've asked myself was, what as it comes to practice real religion every day is this, where do I have margin in my life? Here's what, here's not, we're not doing a hand raise moment here because it's going to get too awkward. I bet if I asked this room to raise your hands, if you think you have margin in your life, very few hands would go up. My hand wouldn't. But here's what I also know. I've been in situations where people have said, John, can you do this? John, can you do this? And I said, no, man, I just don't have any time. But then something really cool comes up that I'm really excited about doing and it's going to take eight hours of my week and suddenly I find time for it. Right, we find time when we want something or when life forces us to, right? There have been moments where we thought we've had no margin and then a huge storm happens in life and suddenly we found it because we had to. So I think this, that all of us have more margin than probably we're willing to acknowledge that we do. And so we're gonna talk through some areas today of where can we try and find margin or space or room to practice real religion. First one is this, is our money. Where can our money go to make a difference? Maybe that is starting to give to a charity or an organization or starting to give to Anchor. Maybe it's helping give a gift to a family in your Anchor group that you know is struggling. There are opportunities to be generous and practice real religion with our money all around us. Here's the thing though. I think we need to take more advantage of what we can call kind of sneaky opportunities. It is easy to see the homeless guy living under his jacket on the sidewalk and hand him two bucks and walk away. It is a lot harder and takes more of us to go through the conversations and be proactive and think about what would God want me to do with my money. Here's the thing, if you start thinking about it, I think more ideas are gonna come. Maybe it's that single parent that you know in your anchor group who doesn't know how they're gonna put gas in the minivan because it's getting to be a three-digit number these days. And they're worried and they're going to the pump with their credit card, hoping that their credit limit isn't kicking in, but they're not going to log in and check their credit limit because they don't want to actually know. What would it look like to give money to them? Maybe it's a person who's in front of you in line at the grocery store and they have six items on the conveyor belt and you see that they're starting to count their dollar bills and then they have four items on the conveyor belt. Maybe that's where we can practice real religion. How fun would it be 
to set aside a little bit of money every single month to practice random acts of real religion. Like when that direct deposit hits your account, you go to the ATM and you get an envelope and you get some cash and you just put it in the envelope and you carry it with you for random acts of real religion. I think God brings us opportunities, but I think we're more aware of the opportunities that God brings us when we plan and prepare for them. Like I think we would interact with our world a lot differently if we had 40 or 50 bucks just sitting in an envelope waiting to see like, God, what do you want me to do with this money? Can I tell you a trap that I've fallen into that I don't want you to fall into and it's gonna sound a little weird? Like, please stop donating to Anchor Cares as a way of having your money go to something good. Like, I have given so many times to Anchor Cares, not because I thought that the church was gonna do the best thing with my money, but because I didn't wanna think about it. I think it's really easy to outsource our generosity. Like, giving to Anchor is important, and you can, like, the church has awesome partnerships, and we're doing great things with it, but, like, if you're trying to outsource your generosity, like, please stop. Like, I think sometimes God is asking us to take that awkward step of interacting with a real person and that really vulnerable thing of saying, I think I'm supposed to help you. That's scary, right? And so many times I'm like, no, I wrote the check to the charity, so I'm good. I think God wants more than that for us. I think God wants us to interact with people in need of help around us. Second area is this is time. So many of us, myself included, have gone back to our pre-COVID time habits where we overschedule the heck out of our lives. And I just, I know this, that when we, again, I think God blesses our planning. Can we be people that plan to have margin with our time? At our anchor track that we just did, we talk about this, about what does it look like to be a front porch person? What does it look like to spend time and and really budget time to hang out in the front area of your house so you can see your neighbors, you can interact with people walking or riding bikes down the street instead of just always going into that kind of private backyard area? What does it look like to be a front porch person? What would it look like to plan time for that single parent in your anchor group who just needs a break? The number one thing that foster families tell me they need when I say, how can we help? They go, we need someone to give us respite care. Like, if you're interested in providing respite care for a foster family, talk to me afterwards. We'll get you in touch with the right people. The number one, they're like, we don't need your money. Like, we don't need gifts. What we need is we need time to rest and recharge. And so we need people who love foster kids that are willing to stand in the gap as their families that are fostering them take a moment to recharge and jump back into being on the front lines of kids who don't have a home. Like our time is a resource that we can use to practice real religion. Here's something else. I think energy is really important. I've been in so many meetings where I've just tuned out and my energy's been low. And when my energy is tuned out in a meeting, when it's low, I, I don't bring ideas to that room. And here's what I know is I need this room bringing ideas about what it means to live for the good and practice real religion. I need this room bringing those ideas to the meetings that they have during the week. Like, that's how we see change. Like, I need this room who's dreaming of, of, a, of, of real religion to bring those ideas and bring that energy to the PTA meeting. Like, I need you to bring it to your board meeting. Because something else that we get to give margin to is social. Like, we get to look around at a room like this, and instead of asking the question, who's here that I want to hang out with, we start to ask the question, who's not here? When we start to ask the question, who's not here, that's when we see real religion. Here's the thing, I should not be where I'm at in my career based on my resume alone. Like, I just shouldn't. A lot of you know this, some of you are gonna laugh, it's fine, we can laugh, it's okay. My degree in college is in clarinet performance. (laughs) 
Some of you are now concerned about the church's finances. It's fine. Talk to Brian later. Um, but I started working at nonprofits, and I started getting opportunities that someone my age and my experience should never get. Why? Because someone looked at a room at a table and said, not just, I think this table's better with John here, but like, I think John will be better with a seat at this table. Here's why that happened for me a lot in my career, is because leaders in those rooms looked at me and saw a younger version of themselves. Here's the thing though, guys. It's really easy to look at someone who looks like you when you were younger and give them opportunities. I would actually contend that's not quite what Jesus calls us to in real religion. I would actually say this, that God is calling us to look for the people who don't look like us and give them opportunities and seats at the table in that room. Because the reality is there are too many upper level leaders in companies and organizations that look like me. And why has that happened? Because we're looking at people who look like us. So can we be people who say, I'm going to look for the people who don't look like me, and I'm going to include them at the table. So with me, as a, right, what does it look like for me as a, as a white guy to say, like, no, there is a woman here who, yeah, she just came back from maternity leave, but she is awesome, and she needs a seat at this table, so we're going to make that happen. What does it say to look like? That person is a different ethnicity and different race than me, and they need a seat at the table because for too long they have not been invited to this table. Like, can we be a church that dreams about and does that? Like, Isaiah does it. Like, in the Isaiah passage we did earlier, he's so explicit in this, guys. He says, how dare you go to church and then exploit your workers? Like, we need to be a church that is changing the face and the culture of organizations and businesses here in the city of Tacoma. Like, that's what this is. We get to do that. We get to practice real religion by looking around at the rooms that we're in and saying, who isn't here? Can we be the church that does that? And here's the thing. We're, we're following up immediately with this point because it matters and you're already feeling it a little bit. Real religion is this. It is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. An extreme example of this is what happened with Jesus at the end of this passage. In verse 28, it says this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard Jesus talk. They got up, drove him out of the town, which is the town he grew up in, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, obviously, this is an extreme example, but this is a truth, is that real religion pokes at the things that are normal. Real religion pokes at normal. Uh, Catherine Booth is an incredible figure in history. She and her husband started the Salvation Army together, and she said this. She said, if we are to better the future, we must disturb the present. We must disturb the present. And Catherine Booth did that, not just with her work in the Salvation Army, but she was on the front lines of really, like, suffrage in the church. She had a friend who was a preacher who was just filled with the Spirit and saying amazing, godly things, but was looked down on and told not to speak because she was a woman. So Catherine wrote a pamphlet, like a full-on apologetic pamphlet. It's like, no, women need to preach. And this is in a season where it was, it was really tough to say that because society was pushing women to the edges of the room. But she disturbed the present to better the future. Real religion does this. It pokes at the things that are normal. It says the things that our eyes have grown to accept are not acceptable to God's eyes. Have you ever had something going on in the background, like a noise or a smell that you've gotten so used to, and then someone else walks into the room like, what's that? <laughs> uh, we're going to do an object lesson. Do me a favor. Look up at the ceiling. Uh, we have the cool lights that you're looking down, but then we have these three, like these nine square white lights. 
right? You all see those? Okay. We never turn those on on a Sunday. Do you know why we never turn those on on a Sunday? Because they make an obnoxious whirring sound at like overlapping frequencies. I don't know enough about electrical stuff to know why I just, I don't know why you would build that. Um, but we never use them. Well, the other day I was showing someone in the space who was going to rent it for the Young Life auction that we hosted the other day, and I flipped up the light switches just to turn on those annoying whirring lights. And then he walked into the room, and I was talking to him. I was like, by the way, we'll get the real lights on for you. We'll turn off the whirring lights. He's like, what do you mean? What whirring lights? And then I went over to the light switches on the wall, and I shut them all off, and it was deathly quiet. He goes, oh. But we do that with brokenness, right? Like it's, there is so much brokenness in this world. There is so much wrong with this world. There is so much brokenness in front of our eyes that it is so easy for us to walk through life and accept that it is normal and God says it shouldn't be. There are so many things that our eyes have gotten accustomed to that God's eyes detest. And there are so many things that we need to look at and say, that's actually not the way it's supposed to be. And just because we've gotten used to it doesn't make it okay. Here's a disclaimer that I, I got to say this in a church, right? Like, real religion is uncomfortable. People are going to get upset when we poke at normal. Like, that doesn't mean you get to be a jerk. There are so many, and there's a type, and I'm sorry if you're this type. Like, there are so many young men that I talk to who are like, man, people are really upset at me, but I'm just proclaiming the truth. And Jesus said, people are going to hate for it. I'm like, no, you're a jerk. <laughs> Like you're saying things in an unkind way and you're justifying it by being like, people drove Jesus out of town, John. No, you're a jerk. <laughs> like people drove Jesus out of town because he was calling out some pretty deep things. But he wasn't rude. He wasn't mean. He wasn't callous. He wasn't a jerk. Like we have to do this, right? And so that requires introspection. That requires accountability. That's why we're in a room together, right? So if we just go on our own and we're like, man, people hate me. I think it's because I'm telling the truth. If we don't ever check that with someone, like we don't know, you're the crazy person. And maybe you're spot on, but if you're spot on, you need the voice of the community. It's like, yes, you're spot on. The last thing is this, real religion is a both and. Real religion is a both and. Uh, as a church, we used to have outside, one of the paintings we had was this thing where it said harbor and then it had two slashes and it said base and it's from the beginnings of Anchor, we've called ourselves a, a harbor-based church. What that means is this, is that we think a church has to be both things, a harbor and a base. It has to be a harbor, which is a place of comfort and refuge and shelter from a challenging environment. And make no mistake, the world is a challenging environment. But it also needs to be a base, which is a place of preparation to return to engage in that challenging environment. And it has to be both. See, when Anchor started, the idea was that there are too many churches that have picked one or the other. Here's what happens if your church is just a base. It becomes very militaristic and you start churning people through and people become expendable and people become like soldiers in this army of God and this kingdom and, and we just burn through people. We burn through people. On the other hand, if a church is just a harbor, it is an, it's, it's, it's cool. It's like a, a hospital, a place of refuge, but it never goes outside those four walls. And when people get healed up from their, from their physical wounds or their spiritual wounds, they actually leave and don't come back. Because like, that was cool. Anchor helped me get healing. Now I'm out. So it has to be both. It has to be both a place where people who are hurting can come here and hear like, it's okay. Jesus says this, that his burden is light. Come and take that. 
But it also needs to be a place where we look and say, as a base, like we need to go and fix so many of the things that are broken in this world, or at least try, because that's what God asks us to do. Jesus is full of these both and things. I remember a few years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had my youth group do this thing called the 30 hour famine with World Vision. Um, it's like a youth pastor's dream. Uh, you get to talk about world hunger and have your kids be socially aware. You get to raise money for that so that it feels like, again, one of those boxes that I used to check. Um, and you get to have your students do a lock-in and you don't have to plan for food because they're not eating. It's all, I hate planning for food for youth events. I was like, no, y'all ain't eating. Like, this is fine. Um, but it was cool. And I remember one of my volunteers who was helping me put it on, it was a guy named Bill who worked full-time for World Vision. I was working as a youth pastor. And a 16-year-old kid came up being a punk, as a lot of 16-year-olds can be. I love you, but sometimes you're punks. Um, and he said this. He goes, man, what's more important? What's more important? Like, John, you help people with their spiritual needs. Bill, through World Vision, like, you help people with their physical needs. Like, what's more important? This is why I love Bill. Like we looked at each other like, I think both. Like I think we get to do both. Jesus, if you look at verses 31 through 40 in, in chapter four, and we don't have time today, but if you look at that, he clearly does both. It's fully integrated. I just think this like, can we be a both and church that addresses spiritual needs and physical needs? We're gonna have the band come forward as we, as we close out. I think it's this, I think we have a natural tendency, whether it's to talk about spiritual needs or to talk about physical needs when we are out in that challenging environment of the world. Confession for you as someone who's on stage, and this sounds weird because I'm preaching right now, when I'm out in that challenging environment, I am so much more comfortable talking about physical needs. I am so much more comfortable talking about physical needs and allowing and helping people with their physical needs. I don't want to talk about spiritual needs when I'm out in that challenging environment. But there are friends of mine who are the exact opposite. They're like, I actually don't want to interact with people in the physical realm. I don't want to, I don't want to touch them. I don't want to, that makes me uncomfortable. But I will gladly talk about how Jesus loves them and has a plan for them and there is hope in him. I think this, that all of us have one tendency to lean towards one way or the other. And so over the next few weeks, here's my challenge for me and for you. Is that will you, while practicing real religion, lean into the area that's not your tendency? If your tendency is like mine to lean into those physical needs, to lean into that, will you do this? Over the next couple of weeks, will you just tell two people about the hope and the new life that Jesus has given you? Will you just tell two people that? And if your tendency is to tell people all the hope in Jesus and never address their physical needs, will you do this? Will you help two people with their real physical needs and never talk about Jesus? And again, I think a true context is we do both in, but sometimes we got to swing a little bit one way or the other to, to get that into our head. I just think this, we need to be a church that does a both end. We need to be a church that says like, yes, we care about your physical needs. Yes, we care about justice. We care about freeing people, but we care about that because Jesus first freed us. That's why we do what we do. Jesus is the ultimate both and. It's actually why we're doing the next series that we're doing called Future People. The teaching series after this, we're calling Future People and we're diving into the book of Revelation. Why are we doing that? Because of the both hand of Jesus. See, Jesus did both. He both died on the cross for our sins and rose again, giving us new hope and life for today. And there are prophecies that Jesus has yet to fulfill. 
See, Jesus says this, he's fulfilled so many of those prophecies written down by guys like Isaiah, that promise of a Messiah who's gonna save us from our own brokenness. But there's still prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled where Jesus says, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna get rid of all physical pain and all spiritual pain and I'm gonna make all things new. He's gonna come back and make all things new. We take communion every week here at Anchor and communion is available for anyone who's ever said yes to Jesus, even if you said yes to Jesus today. Here's what communion is. It's an act of remembering. It's an act of remembering two things. One, it's an act of remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made to die for our imperfections, to die for our brokenness. But it's also remembering that there is a promise that will be fulfilled that has not yet. Remember that Jesus has said that I will defeat evil for good eventually. I will wipe out physical pain. I will wipe out spiritual pain and everything will be made new. When we take communion, we're, we're remembering the sacrifice and we're remembering that future promise as well. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for writing your word in a way that we would understand God in both instructions and visualizations of living it out. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus who gave us literally everything, God. God, I pray this, that as a community, we would lean in to practicing real religion in the most Jesus-centered way possible. That we would look and say, God, where do we have margin that maybe we don't think we do, but you know we do. God, may we be disturbed by what disturbs your heart. May we look at our city with fresh eyes that are eyes of yours, God. May we not get too comfortable living in and around brokenness, God. May we be spurred toward action the way that we've laid out over the last five weeks. God, we're grateful for you. Grateful for Jesus and the ultimate both and that he is. We thank you for the new life that's found here and also for the life eternal that is also found in Jesus. In your name.